This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ongwaley, Associate Director at JMU Civic, and co-hosting with me today is Abe Goldberg, Executive Director. Hi, Abe. How are you? Doing well. Glad to hear it. We also have co-hosting with us today, sophomore Ryan Ritter, who's majoring in history and was just elected vice president of the Student Government Association. Have to get that plug in there and embarrass him. Hi, Ryan. (laughs) Hi, Carol. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me, and I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for being here, Mr. Vice President. (laughs) Well, thank you, Abe. I appreciate it. We have a very special guest with us today, especially just days before the election that's going to help us sort through what should be what what we should be watching in terms of legal processes um, and the Supreme Court. We have with us today Amy Howe. Um, she served as the editor and reporter for SCOTUS blog, which uh, is devoted to coverage of the Supreme Court of the United States. And she serves as an independent contractor and reporter for SCOTUS blog. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Thanks for having me and congratulations, Ryan. Exciting. Hopefully no recounts involved. <laughs> there were, were there any recounts? No, it won't be a Bush v. Gore. It'll, it'll go straight through. <laughs> Okay, no good. hanging chads. No <laughs> hanging chads this time. <laughs> um, so, Amy, there there are over 260 lawsuits, I think, at this point um, in the courts about who can vote, when ballots can be cast, and when they must be counted. I wonder if you can give us an overview of the of the election litigation arms race that we're seeing uh, this election year. Sure, and you know, even before COVID. I had expected to be busy in the run-up to the 2020 election because so much was at stake. I actually started as the full-time reporter for SCOTUS blog back in the summer of 2016, taking over for Lyle Denniston, the longtime reporter. And I you know, had this sort of mental image of all of these just emergency appeals to the Supreme Court. And when I looked back at, at 2016, I think there were three, actually. Um, and so that seems like basically one night at the Supreme Court these days, but the litigation has really exploded because of COVID. But to sort of paint it with a broad picture, the litigation has mostly focused on, you know, voters or groups seeking or challenging accommodations to make it easier to vote in the pandemic. So challenging, for example, the requirement that mail-in ballots be witnessed or notarized challenges to the number or location of drop boxes. If you get your your absentee ballot in the mail, but then you want to put it in a drop box to make sure that it's delivered. So this is the combination of COVID plus all of the problems that have been well documented with the U.S. mail. Um, Challenges to the deadline for the submission of mail-in ballots, again, because of the issues with the mail. Um, We saw in Texas there were challenges to the rules allowing no excuse absentee voting only for older people. Um, And then there were a couple of lawsuits by the Trump campaign challenging plans to send everybody mail-in ballots. And there, there has been a sort of general principle that's emerged. The Supreme Court has more or less said that the federal courts aren't public health officials if state legislatures or state officials want to order accommodations because of COVID-19, that's fine. 
Um, but federal courts shouldn't do it in their place. Amy, thank you so much. Um, are, are, I was wondering, are there any particular issues or cases that are currently on the docket or have already been argued that strike you particularly or you're watching most closely? Um, and additionally, how might these cases impact election results and when we know the election results? So, yeah, so I am a Supreme Court reporter is my primary focus. I have, you know, am watching the cases, you know, more broadly because of the possibility that they could bubble up to the Supreme Court. And right at this very moment, things are pretty quiet because we're so close to the election. Um, Rick Hazen, who is one of the country's top election law experts, sent out a, a tweet last night where he said, you know, is... I don't want to jinx it, but like, is that it? Because last on Wednesday night, the Supreme Court ruled on two disputes out of potential battleground states. One of them was out of North Carolina. The justices left in place an extension of a deadline for absentee ballots. That one came in response to a lawsuit by voters, and the voters and the state board of elections entered into a consent agreement that extended the deadline from three days after the election, which was where the state legislature's state legislature had legislature had said it to nine days after the election. But then Republicans in the state challenged that further extension. Um, but so this, the, the Supreme Court last night left that further extension to November 12th in place. And then the second one came out of Pennsylvania, the another battleground state, the justices turned down a request to fast track consideration of an appeal of a decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that requires election officials to count ballots received within three days of election day. But in the Pennsylvania case, um, Justice Samuel Alito seemed to suggest that the Supreme Court could still decide this question. At, like, uh, in other words, it's not over. That could still decide this question after election day if it needed to. And he said, noted that the state is going to keep the ballots that come in after election day separate so that if further down the line there's some ruling from the Supreme Court that they shouldn't be counted, it's easy to know which ones shouldn't be counted. Um, so after the election, some of the issues that we've already seen are going to fall away, you know, issues related to drop boxes and witness requirements. But as Justice Alito's opinion on Wednesday, on Wednesday suggests, we could still see litigation over the absentee ballot deadlines, and we could see other litigation over how ballots are counted. Remember the hanging chads in 2000? Um, and so, you know, most of us think of litigation arising out of the election in terms of the presidential race. And I think a lot will depend on how the Electoral College count shakes out. The reason that, you know, we had Bush versus Gore, you know, come down was that, you know, the election in the end hinged on the count in Florida. So if it comes down to Pennsylvania, where the deadline right now is not until November 12th for all of the mail-in ballots to come in, it could be a while before we know, uh, you know what's going on in the election. There could also be litigation that doesn't necessarily affect the presidential race, but could affect Senate races and isn't resolved for a while after election day. Some of your listeners may recall, some of, some of us who are a little bit older, uh, back in 2008 and 2009, there was a months-long battle over the Senate race in Minnesota. 
that ultimately wound up with Al Franken winning, but it took months before that issue was resolved. Amy, can you speak to how the Shelby decision of 2013 uh, changed the Voting Rights Act? I, I was reading a Brennan Center uh, for Justice report that argues that restoring and strengthening the Voting Rights Act's protections is crucial to ensuring our elections remain free, fair, and accessible for all Americans. What do you see as the future of the Voting Rights Act, and why does this matter? So Shelby County versus Holder was a 2013 decision in which the Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, struck down Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 4 contains the formula that's used to identify the state and local governments that have to comply with what's known as the pre-clearance requirements. That's another part of the Voting Rights Act. And that's a requirement to get approval from the federal government before making changes to voting laws or voting procedures. So these can be things like photo ID laws, removing people from voter rolls, prohibiting what's known as ballot harvesting, a third-party ballot collection. But it can also be something much simpler, like closing polling places. And so that's what accounts right now, for example, for some of the long lines you see in, placing like, in places like Georgia. And so Shelby County didn't invalidate the whole Voting Rights Act. You know, for example, there's another provision known as Section 2 that also prohibit that prohibits discrimination in voting. But without this pre-clearance requirement, then if if a state or local government enacts a law or a procedure, it can go into effect and someone has to challenge them, which can take a long time and can be expensive. Whereas the under the the system that was in effect before Shelby County, if there was a state or a local government with a history of discrimination, they had to go either to the Department of Justice or to a three-judge panel and get permission to put these laws or practices into place before they could put them into. So it's kind of flipped the, flipped the burden um, bef uh, before these laws could go into effect. Um, so Without the preclearance requirement, you know, whether challenges, you know, you've got the sort of the burden of litigation, it's going to take a time, it's going to take money. And then whether challenges under the Voting Rights Act are successful is going to hinge on how receptive the courts are. Um, you know, obviously, states can adopt laws and policies that expand voting rights. In, in 2018, Michigan voters adopted an amendment to the state's constitution that allowed things like same-day voter registration and no-excuse absentee voting. But the Voting Rights Act is there to make sure that there's a baseline, um, you know, that, that, that states can't, state and local governments can't go below. So, Amy, there's a lot of concern um, bubbling up that all the litigation, especially this year around the elections, uh, decreases legitimacy and trust in the electoral process. I wonder if you can speak to how trust in political institutions might be undermined by the legal challenges and their timing this year. So you know, obviously we hope this doesn't come to fruition, but you could see this happening. And the example that comes to mind to me is, you know, if ballots are cast and then not counted, um, for example, whether because of deadline issues or some other challenges, um, you know, you could also see it, it happen somewhat along the lines of the way it happened in Wisconsin in April when 
you had all these people standing in line um, to vote during during COVID. Um, I think there is a real role for um, for the press and for legal commentators in how we describe this. There was, a, you know, after on Wednesday these rulings in the North Carolina and Pennsylvania cases, you know, describing them not. This was something actually that came up in a different context. Uh, the Chief Justice in talking about political gerrymandering, describing them not as a, a victory for Democrats or a victory for Republicans, but, you know, something when you've got the extended deadlines that the court is not going to interfere with, describing them as a victory for voters. Amy, the Supreme Court has said it wants to make litigation around the voting process more orderly so that it's not disruptive to voters and local election administration. Uh, what can be done to ensure that the election litigation process isn't hijacked for partisan political aims, but that the process still remains accessible and open? You know, I think there's a role for the Supreme Court in doing this and in the way that it decides these cases. Many of these cases come to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis. And you know, in part because of that, the Supreme Court's custom has been that it rules on them by issuing a brief order, you know, frequently without much, if any, of an explanation about, you know, how the justices voted, why they were issuing the particular order that they did. You've done a little bit more of this lately, um, but it would still be useful to have more. I think maybe an explanation of the justices' reasoning, the sort of the affirmative reasoning of why they're issuing this particular order, um, rather than just, you know, what we get more often, which is the dissent from the decision to issue the order, you know, maybe might help to cut future cases off at the pass. It gives guidance to lower court judges. And maybe if there are cases that are frivolous, helps to show which cases are frivolous. You know, I think it's a difficult balance. I'm not sure you can keep it, on the other hand, accessible and open without leaving open the possibility that people will file partisan lawsuits. You know, I think maybe the, the it's kind of a radical idea, but I think maybe, you know, another way to sort of to come at this is to try and cut off the need for election litigation by making sure that the system is set up so that everyone can can vote easily you know you don't i live in maryland where it's you know they sent an application for a mail in ballot to everyone and there's you know plenty of early voting and it's easy to vote by mail and there's plenty of you know i can walk to my local dropbox um, and you don't see, you know part of it certainly is that maryland is not a battleground state but you don't see a lot of litigation over voting just this week the senate confirmed amy coney barrett to be the 115th us supreme court justice and only the fifth female justice how do you think her confirmation will impact elections, particularly this election season, but then also perhaps moving forward? So we don't know much about Justice Barrett, and we're all still getting a little bit used to saying that. Um, you know, as far as any of us could tell, she didn't participate in any election-related or voting-related cases while she was on the Seventh Circuit. She was only on the Seventh Circuit for three years. And then she didn't participate in the Pennsylvania or North Carolina cases on Wednesday night. Uh, the court issued, you know, the court indicated that she didn't recuse herself. She just didn't participate to allow the justices to resolve the issue quickly, you know, so that 
because she would have had to read all the filings and come to a, a relatively quick decision. You know, having said that, you know, she said at the her confirmation hearing and in her statement in the Rose Garden accepting the nomination that Justice Antonin Scalia's judicial philosophy is her judicial philosophy. Um, you know, the closest sort of judge to justice on the bench to Justice Scalia is probably Justice Clarence Thomas or maybe Judge Justice Neil Gorsuch. And they would have blocked the extension of the deadlines in North Carolina and Pennsylvania uh, recently. So, you know, I think that, you know, certainly she's among, she's likely to be among the court's most conservative justices uh, and so is likely to vote with them. And to the extent that those votes recently you know, are, are a, a signal, uh, she's likely to vote with them, you know, for example, to, the way she did, to the way that Justice, rather not the way that she did, but the way that Justices Thomas and Gorsuch did to block the extension of the deadlines in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. So, Amy, the justices have been participating in oral argument remotely for much of the pandemic, and we've recently learned that they'll continue this practice through the end of the calendar year. Uh, have, have you noticed any interesting changes in the way that the justices question or the counsels present their argument? And how has Zoom impacted coverage of the Supreme Court? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun to cover in the sense that, you know, everyone asks questions. They you know start with the chief justice and they go through each justice in order of senior, reverse in order of seniority. Um, and so we hear a lot more from Justice Thomas, for example, who in the normal courtroom setting very rarely asks questions. But because each justice, you know, has an allotted amount of time and normally takes that time um, as a reporter, it makes it much harder to sort of read the room and to try to get a sense of where an argument is going, you know, the way that we normally do it in the courtroom is you know, the, the, the lawyer will get up and the lawyer gets these days a couple of minutes uninterrupted to sort of present, a, 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 to present his or her case. And then the justices jump in with questions and you usually can get a pretty good sense with the possible exception of the chief justice of where the justices stand by sort of the number of questions that they ask an advocate and you know sort of how many times they return you know if somebody has a lot of questions for one side and then very few questions for the other side you know you kind of get a sense of where they're going to vote and when everybody has the exact same exact same amount of time um, for both sides and uses it uh, it, it makes it much harder to predict how the case is going to come out. Um, so it's fun. You know, I, I get to sit at home and, uh, you know, type on, I don't have to take notes by hand. I can type type my notes on my laptop as I'm listening. Um, you know, I also miss sort of being in the courtroom and then in the press room after with my colleagues where you can sort of compare notes and see if you you missed anything that they picked up, up on in the oral argument. Amy, we ask this question of all of our guests on Democracy Matters. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? I thought about this um, for a while and, um, you know, since 2013, Colorado sends everyone a ballot 
which they can return by mail or by hand uh, by the end of the day on election day. And so I think that's what I would do with everyone. It seems like it would increase everyone's access to voting and would eliminate a lot of the election rela election related challenges that we've seen. And by taking the courts out, taking some of the partisanship out, you know, would perhaps restore a lot of the, the confidence in the election system. You know, especially as we think about ways in which voter participation is stratified across various types of socioeconomic and demographic groups, I have to wonder how American politics would change if we knew going into each election, we'd have 100% turnout of all eligible voters. Yeah, I mean, this is not, this is definitely not my area of expertise, but you know, if, if people really had to camp, I mean, we, well, we won't even get into the Electoral College, but you know, if candidates really had to campaign for all of the votes and not just you know, the people that they think are likely to be voters, for sure. Amy Howe, reporter for SCOTUS Blog, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, it was a lot of fun.